Chapter 33 The Specksnyder Concerning the officers of the whalecraft, this seems as good a place as any to set down a little domestic peculiarity on shipboard, arising from the existence of a harpooner class of officers, a class unknown, of course, in any other marine than the whale fleet. The large importance attached to the harpooner's vocation is evinced by the fact that, originally in the old Dutch fishery two centuries or more ago, the command of a whale ship was not wholly lodged in the person now called the captain, but was divided between him and an officer called the specksnyder. Literally, this word means fat cutter. Usage, however, in the time made it equivalent to chief harpooner. In those days, the captain's authority was restricted to the navigation and general management of the vessel, while over the whale-hunting department and all its concerns, the specksnyder or chief harpooner reigned supreme. In the British Greenland fishery, under the corrupted title of Spexioneer, this old Dutch official is still retained, but his former dignity is sadly abridged. At present, he ranks simply as Senior Harpooner, and as such, is one of the captain's more inferior subalterns. Nevertheless, upon the good conduct of the harpooners, the success of a whaling voyage largely depends, and since in the American fishery, he is not only an important officer in the boat, but under certain circumstances, night watches on the whaling ground, the command of the ship's deck is also his. Therefore, the grand political maxim of the sea demands that he should normally live apart from the men before the mast and be in some way distinguished as their professional superior, although always by them familiarly regarded as their social equals. Now, by the grand distinction drawn between officer and man at sea, is this the first lives aft, the last forward. Hence, in the whale ships and merchantmen alike, the mates have their quarters with the captain, and so too in the most American whalers, the harpooners are lodged in the after part of the ship. That is to say, they take their meals in the captain's cabin, and sleep in a place indirectly communicating with it. Though the long period of a southern whaling voyage, by far the longest of all voyages, now or ever made by man, the peculiar perils of it, the community of interest prevailing among the company, all of whom, high or low, depending for their profits, not upon fixed wages, but upon their common luck, together with their common vigilance, intrepidity, and hard work, though all these things do in some cases tend to beget a less rigorous discipline than in merchantmen generally. Yet, never mind how much like an old Mesopotamian family these whalemen may, in some primitive instances, live together. For all that, the punctilious externals, at least, of the quarter-deck are seldom materially relaxed, and in no instance done away. Indeed, many of the Nantucket ships in which you will see the skipper parading his quarter-deck with an elated grandeur not surpassed in any military navy, nay, extorting almost as much outward homage as if he wore the imperial purple, and not the shabbiest of pilot-cloth. And though of all men the moody captain of the Pequod was at least given to the sort of shallowest assumption, and though the only homage he ever exacted was implicit, instantaneous obedience, though he required no man to remove the shoes from his feet ere stepping upon the quarter-deck, and though there were at times when, owing to particular circumstances connected with events hereafter to be detailed, he addressed them in unusual terms, whether in condescension or in terrorum or otherwise, yet even Captain Ahab was by no means unobservant of the paramount forms and usages of the sea. 
Nor, perhaps, will it fail to be eventually perceived that behind those forms and usages, as it were, he sometimes masked himself, incidentally making use of them for other or more private ends than they were legitimately intended to subserve. That certain sultanism of his brain, which had otherwise in a good degree remained unmanifested, through those forms, that same sultanism became incarnate in an irresistible dictatorship. For be a man's intellectual superiority what it will, it can never assume the practical, available supremacy over other men, without the aid of some sort of external arts or entrenchments, always, in themselves, more or less paltry and base. This it is, that forever keep God's true princes of the empire for the world's hustings, and leaves the highest honor that heir can give— to those men who become famous more through their infinite inferiority to the choice hidden handful of the divine inert than through their undoubted superiority over the dead level of the mass. Such large virtue lurks in these small things when extreme political superstitions invest them. That in some royal instance, even to idiot imbecility, they have imparted potency. But when, in the case of Nicholas the Tsar, the ringed crowd of geographical empire encircles an imperial brain, then the plebeian herds crouch abase before the tremendous centralization. Nor will the tragic dramatist, who would depict mortal indomitableness in its fullest sweep and direct swing, ever forget a hint, incidentally so important to his art, as the one now alluded to. But Ahab, my captain, still moves before me in all his Nantucket grimness and shagginess, and in this episode, touching emperors and kings, I must not conceal that I have to do a poor old whale-hunter like him, and therefore all outward majestical trappings and housings are denied me. O oh, Ahab, what shall be grand in thee, it must needs be plucked at from the skies, and dived for in the deep, and featured in the unbodied air." Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.